From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. So much we want to get on the record from Governor Jared Polis today. Masks, COVID-19, and the return to school, and why he asked the Attorney General to investigate the death of Elijah McClain in Aurora. In this case, I agree with the protesters that we should go through every length we can legally to see if laws were violated. And even if there weren't laws violated, we owe it to the people of Colorado to make sure that there is confidence in the process. Then, CPR's podcast On Something starts a second season with a man who may be America's favorite pot smoker. It shouldn't be illegal. It can be helpful if used uh, right, and uh, I think it's a good thing. Well, now it's all going to pot, whether we like it or not. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's jump right into my conversation with Colorado Governor Jared Polis. We talk masks, systemic racism, but we begin with COVID-19 and classrooms. Governor, thanks for being with us again. Always a pleasure, Ryan. A growing number of school districts now plan to have students back in the classroom next month. We've received a lot of comments from parents and teachers who are worried about that. Here is Grace Kaningbauer, who teaches at Conifer High School in Jefferson County. More than anything, I want to be back there at school. I want to be with my students. I want to engage with them and experience literature with them because that's the best way to do it is in person. But at what cost? I feel like I'm in a really a rock and a hard place because my income is very important for my family's survival. I don't know. I feel like I don't really have a choice. And I really do think teachers are in a place of, once again, making sacrifices for the greater good. Well, this is really hard for everybody. Um, It's, you know, really hard for people who work in restaurants and retail trying to decide, is it worth risking my health or risking my job? Uh, it's hard for really people across society. And of course, that means it's hard for educators. It's hard for teachers. It's a difficult decision to make. I mean, to walk away from a career that you put your life into or at least put it on, on pause, or do you or are you willing to take on a little bit more health risk as we are across society, really in every different profession? So I don't hear you saying that there should be a special set of circumstances for teachers. In other words, they're facing the dilemma so many other types of workers are facing? Well, I think every Coloradan is facing this, Ryan. Um, certainly I am. I'm out doing bill signings. I'm out meeting people. I'm wearing a mask. I'm being careful. But I'm, I'm putting my family at risk. You know, it's my job, and I'm taking it seriously, and I'm, I'm doing it. But there's other Coloradans, especially those with pre-existing conditions, that uh, want to be able to stay home. And uh, I completely respect that decision. The state guidelines uh, are going to make schools as safe as reasonably possible. And parents are faced with this dilemma, too, Ryan, across our state. Do I send my kids to school or do I start out online? You know, there's no right. There's no wrong decision. It's a difficult decision to make. Uh, I hope that if my kids' school start, they, I expect that they'll be in school. They're eight and six, third grade and first grade. But it's, it, there's no right answer. It's everybody, you know, needs to take everything into account. The schools are going to be as safe as reasonably possible. But it's like the question you ask yourself, you know, is, is your are your kids in summer camp? I mean, are, are you going out to restaurants? Are you going to stores? I mean, these are all the way that we live and, and decisions that our people are empowered to make. And, and none of them have right or wrong answers. You know, my daughter is in a summer camp because she loves kids. She thrives on that. And, and my son isn't. And he's happy not doing it uh, in the summer. You know, they're taking the precautions they can. But, you know, parents across the state are, are making the right decisions for their families. 
You've said repeatedly that you think it will be safe for schools to open with, say, 25 kids in a classroom. Uh, The state's current safer-at-home rules limit gatherings to 10 people. So with COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations trending upwards, though modestly compared to some other states, how safe are the kids and teachers in a class of 25? I mean, those things don't seem to jibe. Well, the current guidelines are gatherings up to 50 people. I mean, if you're in a, a public building, we we already have day camps that are uh, in groups of 25. So that's similar to what education would be like. So far, it's been a reasonable experience with camps. As expected, there's been a few outbreaks, but by and large, most kids in Colorado had as much of a normal summer as possible. I mean, um, the key thing for schools is to be as safe as reasonably possible, given the fact that we're in a pandemic. What that generally means is keeping cohorts isolated so that we don't have passing time and recess where hundreds of kids mix together that simply can't occur in a pandemic, just as bars uh, and nightclubs can't occur during a pandemic. Nobody's figured this out. We haven't figured out how to have a freewheeling recess or passing time with hundreds of kids. We haven't figured out how to have hundreds of drunk 22-year-olds together in a nightclub. No one has figured that out. And uh, in the meantime, while we're forgoing some things, uh, I believe that we can't interrupt education. We can't sacrifice our future and our children's future just because of the pandemic. 178 different school districts are making plans for reopening classrooms next month. The state constitution has always given the districts the right to set all of their own policies. But is that sort of local control with differing rules and different messages an effective way to fight a pandemic? Well, the pandemic is in a very different situation in different parts of our state. There's rural school districts in our state that have had zero cases of coronavirus for a month or two. So that's very different than a, uh, a district that might have hundreds of cases in their area. What's important for every district is that they prepare to go online if needed. Uh, and there's two reasons they might need to do that. One is many parents won't be ready to send their kids back to school. So those school districts need to be ready to offer that online virtual experience, at least for the first few months for those kids. The second reason is if there's an outbreak at a school, they likely will be closed by the local health department for a period of a week or two while there's an incubation period and testing before they can safely reopen. So every school district needs to be prepared to go online if needed to protect the health of their staff and the teachers and of the kids. Help me understand why you don't think that should just be the default, that next fall resumes online. Well, just as there are, of course, going to be some parents who are not ready to send their kids to school, there's many, many parents, probably the majority, that uh, really don't want their kids to fall behind and and want them to be in that in-person environment. There's many teachers that are itching to get back to the classroom. And uh, we are all uh, ready to move forward as a society in as safe a way as possible. It's about the new normal. Most of you who go to work, you go to work, Ryan, but you're going to work in a different way. I don't know whether you're at the studio or not, but if you are, I'm sure it doesn't look – you are. But it doesn't look exactly like the studio looked three or four months ago, right? I mean it's a different feel. There's probably less people. You're spread out. Schools are going to be a different feel. Your workplace, my workplace, all different. But we have to figure out how to live in a sustainable way until there's a vaccine or cure. And of course, school and education are part of sustainability. I mean they're, they're a bedrock of society. Just to go back to one thing you said at the beginning, is this an existential moment for teachers? It sounds like how you see it is that they are making the decision of whether to go into the classroom at least part of the week or whether to leave the profession. Is that how you see the tension here? 
Well, I think that there's many opportunities for educators to continue with uh, virtual and online because I don't know whether it's going to be 10% of our students or 30% of our students, but whatever percentage it is, many students are going to start the year online. For every student that does, there need to be uh, educators that are willing to work in that online environment, presumably working from their own home. So just as there's teachers that are eager to get back to the classroom and interact with kids, there's other teachers that are very uh, worried about their own health. Maybe they're older, maybe they have a pre-existing condition, and they want to start out online. And I know that many districts are prioritizing those online education opportunities for teachers who are themselves at risk. Last week, Governor Polis, you told Coloradans to, quoting here, wear a damn mask. Uh, and then on Sunday, you posted on Facebook that there's increasing evidence a mask protects the person wearing it, not just others in the vicinity. You wrote, so if you're a selfish bastard and wearing a mask to protect others isn't enough reason to do so, then maybe protecting yourself is? Question mark. Walk us through... When you wrote that post and using the word bastard, I have to think that there was a moment where you said, is that the right word? Well, I looked it up in the dictionary before I used it. It does not usually mean illegitimate child. To be clear, that's an archaic meaning. It's the third meaning. It's, uh, its meaning was appropriate for that. I'll look it up while we're on the phone here. But yeah, I think I have what, what I and a lot of Coloradans have is less and less patience for people that are not wearing masks. I mean, they're putting others at risk. And then, you know, obviously they don't care about others because they're not wearing masks. And, and the point I was trying to make is, you know what, it's not just about others. Because you remember initially, uh, Ryan, a month or two ago, people said, oh, the masks protect others, the masks protect others, which they do. But the, the latest data, the latest science from the last few weeks shows very conclusively, and this was the link in the article, that wearing a mask increases your own protection, reduces your risk of getting the virus if you're exposed by two-thirds, by two-thirds. So it's a big deal. The definition of bastard is an unpleasant or despicable person. So that was the uh, obviously meaning that uh, was meant in there uh, and not the uh, tertiary and archaic definition of a person who was born of parents who were not married. Yes, right. I, I, I actually didn't mean to imply that you were using that term in, in a different way. I guess the, the point is the first definition is a pretty inflammatory thing to call citizens of this state. You know, just say a few well, more it, words. It, it's absolutely despicable to not take any precaution to prevent you from spreading the virus to others. When we know that about half of transmission occurs from people who are asymptomatic before they manifest symptoms or have an asymptomatic infection, that is completely an inappropriate way to act. And the vast majority of Coloradans understand that. There's so much frustration with folks. So here's the question. Why not channel this passion into a mask mandate statewide? And I just want to say, uh, when we solicited questions for you, this was one of the most asked questions. Why not just say they're required, period? Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly open to anything that increases mask wearing. Right now, more than half of our state is under a mask mandate. I think it's over 50, close to 60 percent of the people of our state. And, of course, I'm very interested in how that mandate affects whether masks are used or not. So we all, you know, I'm me. I'm very evidence-based. We're mm. science-based. If it actually helps, uh, we're happy to, to do that. But I don't think there's a lot of people that are waiting to say, I'm not going to wear a mask until Jared Polis says I have to. 
Uh, because frankly, in the places with mass mandates like Denver and other areas, you still see people without masks, right? I mean, it, 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 so I'm very interested in the data. Uh, my goal and my desired outcome is to maximize mask wearing, reduce the spread of the virus, and allow for an economic or strong economic recovery. That is to say, you have not seen data that backs up that a mandate would change the numbers dramatically. No, we've seen areas of Colorado with good compliance that have mandates, areas with good mask wearing that do not have mandates. We also have areas that have uh, mask wearing requirements that don't have good compliance. So the goal is mask wearing. The latest push that I've talked about is that it also prevents you from getting the virus. That's why I was using that strong language around dam and bastards and things that I don't normally say, because what I'm trying to show is this, this actually protects you. It's not just this selfless act and, 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 and altruistic, which I hope moves most Coloradans, and yes, it does. But even if you're somebody who doesn't care about other people, I hope you care about yourself. To a different topic now, policing, especially in minority communities, there's been renewed focus on the case of a young man in Aurora, Elijah McLean. In August of last year, officers responded to a report of a suspicious man and stopped McLean. He had broken no laws. They said he resisted their commands. They put him in a chokehold and injected him with ketamine. He went into cardiac arrest and ultimately died. The three officers involved were not charged. The district attorney has said that's because the cause of death is undetermined. You recently appointed the attorney general as a special prosecutor in the case. What do you think might be found that wasn't already? At the end of the day, Ryan, I was not confident that the prosecuting authority pursued every possible angle in the investigation in charging criminally. Uh, the cops or paramedics. Um, And I think that we owe it to the family of Elijah. We owe it to the people of Colorado to make sure that we take every step possible in the context of the rule of law to hold the perpetrators accountable. I have full confidence that the attorney general's investigation will do so. What makes you say that? In other words, I gather you looked at the case and you saw the holes or what you perceived to be the holes. What were they? I was afraid it was dismissed too early without uh, investigating potential criminal charges. There was a November letter from the DA, and I agree uh, with many of the voices of those who led their uh, solidarity through protest to say, you know what, before we let those officers off scot-free with no legal ramifications from a criminal perspective, we should have a thorough, independent investigation to see if they can be charged and convicted in a jury for violating any of the laws of the state of Colorado in the unfortunate tragedy and the death of Elijah McLean. Do I hear you saying then that it's the protests in large part that brought your attention to the case? Because we we are almost a year out now. Well, I share the uh, skepticism that the protesters have. Sometimes protesters are right, Ryan. Sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes they're right. We all form our own independent decisions. Uh, In this case, I agree with the protesters that we should go through every length we can legally to see if laws were violated in the tragic death of Elijah McCain. And even if there, McClain, even if there weren't laws violated, we owe it to the people of Colorado to make sure that there is confidence in the process. Even if the process leads to a decision that there's no prosecutable offense, there's a lot of skepticism, including my own, including that of the demonstrators, including those of most of the people in Colorado, that all possible avenues were thoroughly investigated. What does your own searching look like about race right now, about your own privilege and power? Well, you know, it's tough. Um, I think every 
American is also looking at themselves in a mirror. You know, I, I'm of Jewish heritage, and we are still in the generation of people. I just signed a bill last week, Ryan, with a Holocaust survivor, Fanny Starr, to have Holocaust and genocide prevention education in our schools. So we're still, a generation is still with us that was industrially slaughtered over 6 million Jews just because of their faith and their heritage. And so we grew up with that. And every I think every Jewish American grows up with that. Americans of different heritage grow up with those legacies in their family of, of what's happened. And uh, it means that we need to you know, understand that as America, we're a nation that welcomes everybody. We're a nation where everybody is equal under the law. But we know that those words on a document are only as good as they are in the field, in real life. And I, I don't think any of us think that we fully recognize that that ever-expanding promise of equality under the law uh, and equality of opportunity, that right for life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness that the Founding Fathers so wisely created and has been gradually expanded over time. So at least now it covers everybody in word, but it's up to us to make sure that it also covers everybody in deed. So I think I hear you saying that the darkness of what the Jewish people have faced, does that give you some perspective, some a starting point to understand what others have experienced? Is that what I hear you saying? Well, that's just my own experience and my own family experience. Obviously, I've never experienced being black. Um, I've never experienced being Latino. I've experienced being gay and I've experienced being Jewish. So we all start with our own experiences. My mom was not able to join the sorority that she wanted in college. She rushed it. And they made some anti-Semitic remarks, and, and, and then it was they made clear that they didn't allow Jews in that sorority. You know, a formative experience for my mother, right, in the 1960s. My father uh, joined an all-Jewish fraternity because they didn't allow Jews in the non-Jewish fraternities at, at MIT that uh, he was at that time. So this is something we grew up with in my parents' generation and my generation, of course, being gay uh, as well as being Jewish. So Everybody approaches this from what have I been through. But of course, I haven't been black. I haven't been Latino. I haven't been Asian American. And uh, those were all things that we can learn from our friends that have walked a mile in those shoes. Where do you see systemic racism in Colorado? Well, I think you have to look uh, everywhere, Ryan, um, really in all of our institutions. Um, you know, a lot of my background is in education. I served on the State Board of Education. I chaired it. I started charter schools to serve at-risk kids. So I don't want to diminish it being in other areas. It's in health. It's in uh, economy. It's in everywhere. But it absolutely is in education in terms of access to a great school, the disproportionate amount of children who drop out from at-risk neighborhoods from an economic perspective. Our minority graduation rate is lower matriculation through higher education. So all of these educational inequities, that's been a big part of my work of the last several decades, of course, as well as health inequities, economic inequities, and others. I want to talk about the economy in the face of COVID-19. Colorado's unemployment rate around 10% now. And since the pandemic started, Congress has supplemented regular unemployment benefits with a $600 additional weekly payment. Unless Congress acts, that'll expire at the end of the month. Separately, over the weekend, you extended an order requiring landlords to give 30 days notice of eviction. Neither extra unemployment nor relief from rent can last forever. What can the state do to cushion the financial burden on people as those benefits and protections either decrease or go away? First of all, we're, we're appreciative of any federal aid that our citizens of Colorado get. And so we appreciate, appreciate the Paycheck Protection Program. We appreciate the one-time cash payment to people. We appreciate the unemployment insurance. And I'm very hopeful 
that Democrats and Republicans will be able to come together at the national level and pass another round of assistance for the people of America. And that, of course, includes the people of Colorado. Beyond that, we look at what we as Colorado can do. When working with the legislature, we were able to create a $20 million grant fund for our very small businesses who weren't able to get the Paycheck Protection Program, one, two, three-person businesses. And then, as you indicated, we also said, instead of the normal, by the way, you have 10 days to be evicted if you don't make payment. We're saying people should have the 30 days to catch up and that opportunity to kind of catch up on the rent payments to be able to uh, stay in their home. Do you acknowledge there simply will be evictions as a result of COVID-19? Is that a, a fact that you accept as governor? Well, in the absence of federal action, that's likely to be the case. I I hope that aid for renters, aid for landlords and homeowners, I hope that that is all in a federal relief package. In Colorado, we have a very tight fiscal environment. We worked with the Republicans and Democrats in the legislature to make some very difficult cuts this year. Colorado has a balanced budget requirement, uh, and we're not allowed to, nor necessarily should we deficit spend. The federal government is able to borrow money at a very low rate, 1% or 2%, and I hope that they, uh, as part of their package, Package includes something that helps renters across our state and across our country. Before we go, uh, the legislature put a measure on the November ballot to increase the tobacco tax and, for the first time, tax e-cigarettes and vaping products. Some of that money would go to the state's operating fund, some to preschool programs that you strongly support. The last study that was done found Colorado ranked number one in the country for teen vaping. Do you think raising the tax on vaping products will reduce teen use? So absolutely. We, we know that. I mean, this is science. We know what happens when you raise uh, the tax rate on vaping and smoking products. This is a loophole that we want to close in Colorado. Vaping has a zero tax. It doesn't have the same nicotine tax that tobacco and chewing tobacco and pipe tobacco, all those things have, because the way in our state that things get taxed is the voters have to vote on it. That's what we're going to be doing now. We want to close that loophole. We know that if we simply taxed uh, vaping at the same rate as other nicotine products, and I think the initiative also uh, adjusts the nicotine tax to be more in line with where many other states are, it absolutely will reduce the smoking rate probably by as much as 20 percent in our state. And the biggest impact are teenagers because they are the most price sensitive and the most likely never to start vaping or smoking uh, if we don't have it subsidized by not being taxed. Are you also pleased that it raises revenue? Well, it's important that the revenue is not a free check for politicians or the legislature. It goes to smoking prevention. It goes to preschool. I hope that it's a diminishing revenue source over time, Ryan, as less and less people smoke. But of course, it needs to be invested in a wise way in our future. And uh, I'm confident that this uh, initiative has the guardrails to do that as a powerful tool to reduce the teen vaping rate. Colorado wants to be number one in a lot of things, Ryan. We don't want to be number one in underage vaping, and this initiative will fix that. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Jared Polis is Colorado's governor. We spoke Monday afternoon. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with Willie Nelson. Yes, Willie Nelson. I'm Ryan Warrior with CPR News. News changes daily, and every day, CPR and NPR bring you reliable, up-to-date information, facts and advice, news about what's happening in your state. You have access to this important coverage thanks to the generosity of members who continue to make voluntary donations. Join them 
Sustain CPR for yourself and for the benefit of the thousands of listeners who rely on Colorado Public Radio every day. It's easy at CPR.org. Willie Nelson is a lot of things, country music icon, prolific touring act, and probably the closest thing America has to a pot poster boy. He's not just a cannabis enthusiast, but a longtime activist for legalization. And Nelson's the subject of the season two premiere of CPR's podcast On Something. Before we give it a listen, host Anne-Maria Wad is on the line, and hello. Good morning. In your conversation with Willie Nelson, what stood out to you? Well, you know, he is a guy whose life is about traveling, about, you know, being on the road again. (laughs) Um, And right now, obviously, he can't do that. And so hearing him a little bit bummed about it was no surprise. But hearing him kind of talk about the silver lining, he's had a lot of time to write music. Um, You know, he's 87 years old. The next three albums are in the can already. He just put out album number 70. Wow. Um, So, yeah. So um, that was that really stood out. And then uh, I think given current events, we were really eager to talk to him about uh, all of the times that he has interacted with police over the years, especially because of marijuana. Um, And I think what surprised me is he's got no ill will towards police. He's got no ill will towards anybody who arrested him. Um, He actually talks about uh, inviting one of the officers who arrested him in El Paso on the bus to hang out later on. Um, And he feels like in every one of those interactions, he's been treated just like anybody else. He's never really gotten like the celebrity treatment. Oh, in just a few seconds here and give us a hint as to what's coming up in season two beyond this first episode. Yeah. So we have a a mini series in the season um, of stories that are going to talk about different ways that marijuana can, or legal marijuana specifically can intersect with the healthcare system. Okay. Um, Usually from the point of view of a person who wants to use it or has used it. um, And one of them deals specifically with pain and the opioid epidemic. Um, we are going to address the very controversial intersection with pregnancy this season. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, our next episode, I can give a little bit of a preview about is all about briefly, yeah. uh, what it takes to legalize in a deep south, deep red state like Louisiana. An exciting season of On Something coming up. And we're going to listen to the first episode from this new season. Okay. So. Ever since the last season of our show ended way back in the fall, I've been trying to get an interview with Willie Nelson. I mean, we host a podcast all about legalizing weed. And here's a guy who has been all about smoking weed, singing about weed, legalizing weed for decades. He even has his own legal weed company now, where he is the chief taster. So back in the normal times, we were going to go and have the iconic Willie Nelson moment in a very specific place. Willie Nelson, thank you so much for having me on the tour bus before the show. I mean, this is awesome. I like, um, I like your air freshener. It's not bad. No, it's... <laughs> it's very relaxing. It's very thank relaxing. You, is thank it lavender? You. Is that lavender I'm smelling? Uh, it could be. could be. We were going to fly out to one of his tour stops and do the interview on his turf. The bus. The honeysuckle rose. The guy tours like his life depends on it, and the bus is practically his second home. Much like weed, it's part of the legend of Willie Nelson. 
The bus is so a part of Willie's identity that in 1998, when the Kennedy Center honored him, the bus was invited on stage. They told us we couldn't do this, so of course we did. Brought your best friend, all 21 tons of In any case, the bus and I, we missed our chance to get acquainted this year. Due to the coronavirus and social distancing, there are no shows, no tours, no live music at all. The stuff that basically makes up Willie's natural habitat. Willie, you're on with Anne-Marie. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi there. Very nice to meet you. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm great. So we decided to call him up and talk to him about his long, occasionally troubled relationship with weed. What does marijuana do for you? Why do you like it? Keeps me from killing people. Oh, okay. That's a good reason. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I get real angry. I have a temper. I've been red-headed most of my life, Mm -hmm. and they call me the, you know, the red-headed temper tantrum. So, yeah, weed is a huge part of Willie Nelson's persona. Maybe you've heard, roll me up and smoke me when I die. And it sounds like all fun and jokes. But this is a guy who credits cannabis with saving his life, or at least saving him from himself. And that's kind of where I am, and I've had to deal with that temper uh, all my life, and so have everybody else around me. So let's take a moment and trace that relationship with marijuana back to the beginning. Willie was born in Abbott, Texas, just four years before marijuana became illegal federally in 1937. He would smoke his first joint more than 20 years later in Fort Worth, Texas, in 1954. He had just ended his college career to focus on his music career, singing in honky-tonks while working part-time as a radio DJ. performing any work for the Communist Party. In his memoir, he wrote that he and a friend were sitting at a bar watching the McCarthy hearings on a black-and-white TV. Doris Day was playing on the jukebox in the background. His friend turned to him and said, Willie, let's blow some tea. Willie asked if he could have a bit of tea to try later because... Like a lot of people at that time, he was scared of marijuana. You know, he had seen Reefer Madness, which came out when he was a kid. And more vicious, more deadly, even than these soul-destroying drugs, is the menace of marijuana. He said movies like this, quote, said I would go crazy and stick up a bank and rape little girls and murder innocent people if I blew tea. He wrote that his friend rolled him a joint and, quote, told me to get high and be somebody. Later, on the drive home, Willie pulled over to the side of the road and took that advice. He smoked that whole skinny joint, and he felt nothing. For the next six months... He'd bum joints off the same friend, smoke them all the way down, and same thing. Nothing. But finally, he figured it out. And he says, quote, Since then, I have made up for those wasted six months. Don't let the stars get in your eyes, don't let the moon 
early 60s, after he moved to Nashville, Tennessee, Willie joined the Cherokee Cowboys with Ray Price. Price, the Cherokee Cowboy himself, would go on to be a hit maker and eventually a country music hall of famer. You know, I traveled a really long time and uh, kind of suspected that he might smoke, uh, but he never smoked in, you know, around anybody. And one day I went to his room for something and uh, went in the, the front door of the room and he was in the bathroom and I looked over and he had a towel between, <laughs> <laughs> uh, between, between uh, the floor and the bottom of the door. And I said, wait a minute, Raymond, what are you hiding in there? And you know, we've opened up about it. But, yeah, he was an old marijuana smoker from a long, long time ago. Right. And uh, he realized a long time, too, that it should be legal. What were what do you think he was trying to hide, or what were you trying to hide? Well, it was pretty goddamn illegal back in those days. So, uh, you know, uh, you had to hide it, or you could go to jail. And he wasn't necessarily hiding it from me. There was... Probably hiding it from the maid and the, you know, the hotel security and all that, all those things that could get you in trouble. So, right. uh, we had to hide it back in those days. Right. After leaving the Cherokee Cowboys and going solo over the next decade, Willie briefly thought about retiring from music altogether in 1970 after a streak of misfortune. He moved to Austin, Texas, where the Austin sound, a blend of rock and country, was starting to take shape. Shotgun Willie sits around in his underwear. And it inspired him. Biting on a bullet, pulling out all of his hair. A shotgun Willie's got all of his family there. He got back in the game. In the 70s, Willie Nelson was one of the pivotal figures in a movement called Outlaw Country. It was rougher, punchier, closer to the rock side of country. Willie and his friends grew long hair and started wearing leather jackets. In his memoir, he wrote about experimenting with psychedelics in the 70s, even playing a show on acid. Like, a lot of acid. Willie! But she never complained. The bad times are the bad thing he's done. The country music lifestyle of non-stop touring was full of whiskey and hard drugs. It was not what she would call a healthy lifestyle. People he performed with during this time, like Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard, they are all gone now. I don't want to be the last man standing on a second thought, baby, I do. Getting hard to watch my pals check out. Cuts like a wore out night. One thing I learn about running the road is forever don't apply to life. In 2018, Willie released the song Last Man Standing. Merle Haggard had just died a couple years before. Maybe we'll all meet again on the other side. We'll pick and sing, load up the buses and ride. When I, I, I had started smoking a lot of cigarettes, drinking a lot of whiskey, doing a lot of things that I shouldn't have been doing, and when I got to the point where I couldn't breathe from smoking cigarettes, I took all of my cigarettes, threw them away, rolled up a big fatty, <laughs> put it in there with um, 
where the Chesterfield used to be, and I haven't had a cigarette since, and I haven't had a drink, you know, maybe a sip every now and then, but nothing like I used to do. Mm. So my major bad habits, I think I pretty much have a hand on. Can you think of like a particular moment when you went from a regular pot smoker to an advocate for marijuana legalization? Well, the first time that you know I realized it was really illegal was the first time I started thinking about that ain't right. You know, it shouldn't be illegal. It's it's uh, can be helpful if used uh, right, and uh, I, I think it's uh, it's a good thing. So I remember meeting him briefly and smoking a joint and it, telling him about Normal. Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, founded in 1970 by this guy, Keith Stroop. Like me, he had been trying to get a face-to-face with Willie for a while, but he got lucky and finally ended up on the bus after a show in D.C. But like he said, it was brief. And then I got to know him a good bit better right after Jimmy Carter had been elected president. It was 1976. Keith ended up on the bus after a few more shows and finally got his chance to talk to Willie about advocacy. Willie is, I think, one of the most valuable advocates we've ever had. I used to tell him, (laughs) I'd say, Willie, uh, you're America's most beloved marijuana smoker, but you need to keep in mind you're the only beloved marijuana smoker mm-hmm. for many of those years. For any other major entertainer or, or celebrity of any sort, if you would have been so out front with your marijuana smoking, I think you would have you would have paid a heavy price for it professionally. So. The hippie movement is really the beginning of a big shift in how America sees pot smokers. In the 50s and 60s, there were still all of these popular racial stereotypes about who pot smokers were. But now, in the 70s, as overwhelmingly white kids start getting busted for pot use, suddenly the issue shifts. In 1970, the Nixon administration made marijuana a Schedule I drug. And over the next decade, various states passed laws decriminalizing marijuana in response to that, something that Keith Stroop and Normal had a hand in. It started to go from being a moral issue to being a personal freedom issue. Willie, at this time, had one boot in the conservative world of country music and the other in the Austin counterculture. He was trying peyote and having revelations with the kids, all the while playing music that their parents loved. His appeal reached across generations and political divides, so Willie chose to basically be the face of normal. Well, it was kind of a no-brainer. Well, I don't know whether I should be careful or not. I mean, I'm proud of my celebrity status, and if it can be helpful in whatever I believe in, well, what's the problem? Over the years, he's held benefits and recorded ads for Normal. And before you ask, yes, he recorded the ads while he was on the bus. Hi, this is Willie Nelson for Normal. And like millions of other responsible Americans, I smoke pot. There's nothing wrong with the responsible use of marijuana. And it's none of the government's business. Let's get the government out of our private lives once and for all and stop arresting smokers. Let's take a stand for personal freedom. In 1994, Willie became co-chair of Normal's advisory board, and he still holds that position today. 
Keith, he actually wrote something about you very recently. I didn't read it. What did he say? Well, he said a lot of things. <laughs> but um, the, the particular part that struck me that I wanted to ask you about was um, this quote. He says, it's evidence of a special regard average Americans feel for Willie, despite his marijuana use, because he's considered one of them, a Texas-based regular guy. They protect Willie from the consequences other marijuana smokers might face. Do you agree with that? No, I don't don't agree with that at all. They haven't given me any special treatment at all. I'm wondering, what's the most memorable time that you've gotten busted before for weed? (laughs) The most memorable? Yeah. (laughs) Well, they're all rather memorable. A U.S. Border Patrol station in Texas says Nelson was arrested on Friday. Anderson? Well, Joe, as you know, uh, Willie Nelson, no stranger to... uh, or well, should we say joint investigations? Is that, <laughs> yeah, you could call it that. He's pretty unapologetic, bona fide pot aficionado. One time I got busted in El Paso, and then me and Tony and Gator, my driver, and they threw us all in jail in the same cell there. And we were sitting around and singing, nobody knows the trouble. <laughs> oh, man. So, like, what were the circumstances of that case? Like, what did you get in trouble for specifically? On this particular one, well, we've stopped at the border between El Paso uh, and Texas and New Mexico border, and uh, they decided to pull us over and then go over the and see what we had on the bus. And so they found some marijuana, so they uh, took us to jail. Yeah. It was 2010, and it was the Sierra Blanca checkpoint, nicknamed Checkpoint of the Stars. It's right when you're leaving New Mexico and entering Texas. It's not actually at the border between the U.S. and Mexico, but nonetheless, it is a customs checkpoint. And it's notorious for stopping and searching most everyone, but especially famous touring musicians like Fiona Apple, Nelly, Snoop Dogg, and Willie. When agents found six ounces of marijuana on Willie's tour bus during a search, he claimed it. So they charged him with possession. During sentencing, the prosecutor offered Willie a plea deal that included singing for the court. Blue eyes crying in the rain, to be exact. Blue eyes crying in the rain. For what it's worth, he did not actually have to sing in court. The judge said the song request was a joke that went too far. And ironically enough, she did not want to give people the impression that Willie Nelson might be treated differently. As outspoken as Willie can be about issues that are dear to him, like marijuana legalization, at the same time, he does not like to talk about politics. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's not a political guy. He's been raising money for Democrats for most of his career, and just recently he played a virtual fundraiser for former Vice President Joe Biden. And yet, from time to time, people seem surprised that Willie supports candidates on that end of the political spectrum. Case in point, 2018. He announced he was headlining a rally for Democrat Beto O'Rourke, who was running for U.S. Senate in Texas at the time to unseat Republican Senator Ted Cruz. Some of Willie's conservative fans weren't thrilled and criticized his choice to support a Democrat. 
he went on The View to respond. And people are shocked at that, that you would support a Democrat. Why? <laughs> Why? Do they have some misunderstanding of you? I don't know. I guess so, because I've been supporting Democrats all my life. You know, but... <laughs> but I think they have this image that you don't. Why? I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea, uh, because you know, I haven't hidden it that much. But he's... he's... Willie is going to perform. He's not just supporting the guy. He's performing at, a, at a, an event for Beto, correct? Yeah, we're doing a little fundraiser there in yeah. Austin. And m- many of your fans took tremendous issue with this. Yeah. You know, a lot of your fans didn't like it. Why do you like care. him so much? He doesn't care. <laughs> that, that, he doesn't care, so let's just move on. I don't care. You know, they're entitled to their opinions, <laughs> yeah. and I'm entitled to mine. That's right. And as if to leave no room for doubt... He went on to debut this song at the rally, his last number of the night. If you don't like who's in there, vote them out. That's what election day is all about. But why would there have been any room for doubt? Like he said, this is a guy who has been supporting Democrats his whole life. He's not exactly shy about what he believes in. think those fans see in you, that they kind of overlook the fact that you're very different from them politically? Well, I hope we can talk about music and not talk about politics. Uh, Whenever you go to one of my concerts, we don't talk about politics at all. Uh, When we go in there to play music, that's what we play. And, uh, uh, you know, somebody asks me what I think about something, I'll tell them, regardless of whether it's good for me or not. Yeah. I'm as free as the breeze, and I'll do as I please. I'm just a bombing around. I got a million friends. In pre-pandemic times, it looked possible that a critical mass of states might legalize cannabis in some way by the end of this year. We could have been looking at legal weed in some form in more than 40 states. And it's still too early to tell exactly what impact the pandemic will have on all of this. Some states, for example, are still moving forward with gathering signatures. A few states are taking a closer look at legalizing as part of broader criminal justice reforms. But some efforts might just fall by the wayside. Willie, however, stays optimistic. And he has reason. This man is 87 years old, and he has seen a lot of change in his life. So I'm curious, what do you hope happens in the next few years with marijuana legalization? I hope they legalize it, tax it, use the money. Uh, In fact, I had a a little statement that I wanted to make sure I told you folks that we need to end the federal ban on cannabis, stop putting people in prison for it, and we need to open up the federal banking system and accept taxes nationally. I don't see anything wrong with that. We take the tax money, we use it for good things, and uh, I can't see that as a problem. You've been around since before the start of the drug war, and I'm wondering, you know, based on what you're seeing now in the country, do you feel like you might be around to see the end of it? There's a possibility that we could, you know, we've already seen uh, it ending in several states, several places. Uh, locally, I think we will see more of it nationally in the future. Willie is not 
of course, a lawmaker or a political candidate or really even any kind of person who is in the room where it happens. He's a guy with a guitar. But for lots of people, that has been enough. He's got this outlaw brand that is enduring and popular, and his weed use is a big part of that. In a lot of ways, it's one of the reasons legalization is a conversation that's even happening today. Willie helped mainstream it to a lot of people who would have been otherwise uninterested. Hey guys, sorry it's Meredith. Um, can we, I have his next interview next. We, of course, wanted to spend all day talking to Willie about this, but... All right, well, I guess it's time for me to let you off the hook. It was really great talking to you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Nice talking to you, Anne-Marie. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Hopefully, to be continued someday on the bus. That is the first episode of the second season of On Something with Anne-Marie Awad. It's CPR's podcast about life after legalization, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News.